thanks, uh, thanks for tuning in, and uh, thanks, Scott, for being with us. This is uh, our inaugural experiment in the Lean Startup Podcast. We're going to uh, we're going to give this a try. So uh, thank you, Scott, for being our, our very first volunteer slash guinea pig. Happy to do it. Uh, yeah, thanks. So hi, everybody. I'm I'm Eric Reese. Uh, this is the Lean Startup Podcast. And what we're going to do is um, ask Scott, who's going to be our guest today, to introduce himself, and then we're really just going to have a conversation about uh, you know wherever the wherever the conversation about Lean Startup takes us. So Scott, I'll let you take it away. Great, thanks. Um, so as Eric said, my name's Scott Butler. I uh, I work for Blackbaud, which is the world's leading provider of of solutions for nonprofit organizations. Uh, have over 28,000 customers worldwide and uh, about 2,600 employees spread throughout the world and um, you know we about half a billion dollars in revenue a year so pretty substantial company um, in our space and uh, and my current role is actually to try to figure out how to drive more innovation through Blackbaud which uh, you know through lean startup principles which is why I'm uh, I'm talking to you today, <laughs> and I had awesome. the, the fortune of getting some time with you. So this is great. Uh, but I've had various different roles at Blackbaud, including product management, uh, M&A integration. Uh, actually, was a designer way back in the day. So it, it's it's uh, you know various roles, but that's my, that's my focus right now. Super cool. So uh, yeah, so I guess the the first question I had for you was around sort of structure for you know was we're trying to bring lean startup principles to Blackbaud. Um, we've been reading various things and, and, and listening most recently to your webinar on bringing lean startup principles to established organizations. And, uh, and so we're, we're a little, I don't know if conflicted is the right word, but we're struggling to find the right, um, the right structure for our organization. Um, we've talked about uh, potentially forming an entirely new business unit that is, um, that is sort of the incubator for projects. Uh, We've talked about trying to have completely self-sufficient teams within the business units themselves, uh, mm -hmm. and we've also talked about you know how feasible it is to try to stay aligned by function like we are now, and just have quote-unquote dedicated teams that that focus on our solutions. And so, really, one of the first things I'd like to ask you is, you know, I'm guessing there are types of organizations in which one structure might uh, lend itself. Uh, well, as opposed to the other structures, yeah. Um, I guess I should have I should have started at the top by telling you that you know Blackball currently has three business units, uh, sort of a mass market business unit, an enterprise business unit, and an international business unit. And in those business units, there is sales, services, marketing, support, uh, and then the other parts of the organization like product management and engineering and finance and things like that are considered shared services organizations that are again functionally aligned. So. With that background, <laughs> yeah, uh, looking for just sort of suggestions on you know how we should be thinking about this and um, you know what recommendations you might have. Sure, sure. I, I have spent a lot of the last year, um, year and a half, working on issues like this because as uh, as lean startup has become increasingly adopted inside established companies, you know, there's there's been a lot of questions about okay, well, so how do we structure teams for success? And the first thing is a lot of the issues that we're talking about have nothing to do with Lean Startup specifically. They're just age-old organizational questions that big companies have been trying to figure out for ages, which is what, you know, how much power do you put in the business unit versus, you know, how much do you want, how much organizational structure do you want to align with the P&L versus how much do you want in the matrix versus how much do you want in a, you know, in functional organizations. And right. I, I have not met a single company that is not, either has just completed or is in the process of contemplating 
a change in that structure from business unit to matrix or, or back and forth. It's just one of these perpetual organizational challenges where I don't know that there's actually a right some kind of right answer. Mm -hmm. But from the point of view of creating an innovation team, there are some right answers. Okay. And and before I get to the question about okay, should it be a external joint venture, you know, subsidiary versus, you know, an integrated team, I think the first thing is just to say, well, what are the characteristics that an innovation team needs? I think of as kind of the structural prerequisites to be successful. Okay. And then we can think about all right, in your organization, what is the best way to achieve those prerequisites? Does that make sure. sense? Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned one of them, which is we got to have cross-functional, dedicated teams. Yep. If I had to pick one thing that corporate America seems to struggle with the most, it is the idea that uh, we should you know, take people out of their silo, put them on a project on a full-time basis. Mm -hmm. Because God forbid, what <laughs> if, I mean, can you imagine, what if they're not busy 100% of the time? <laughs> right, like what if there's only you know 80% of a person's amount of work needed in engineering on this project? What will they do the other 20% of the time? Can we can we tolerate it? Right. So to prevent the utilization rate of any individual person dropping below 100%, we schedule people up to like 150% or 200%, and then we say, well, just multitask as best you can. And we feel like as managers, we're getting a lot more done, a lot more projects on the spreadsheet. We can. Solves a lot of our, our product roadmap and milestone political problems because we can just we have a lot more things in progress at any one time. So instead of having to make the hard decision to, uh, I'm of course not saying at your company, but at a lot of companies, rather than having to make the hard decision about which few things are we really going to invest in, we get to pretend we're investing in a lot of other things. Right. Listen, for regular projects in our kind of sustaining innovation part of the portfolio, mm -hmm. as much as I find this situation a little bit laughable, it it does work. Yeah. It's not it's not unworkable, right. but for the innovation part of the portfolio, it is absolutely unworkable. Yeah, because you can't ask an individual person to multitask between something that's highly uncertain and something that's relatively certain. Hmm. It's it's kind of cruel to say, look, yeah. you're an engineer and you you have a certain like you know you want to get promoted for having built good architecture. So yeah. like when you come in the morning, what are you going to work on? It, like Improvements to the architecture that you know are going to ship, you know are going to be successful, or right. like this crazy thing that's going to be refactored 40 times, and customers probably don't want it. And God only, it's just like okay, whatever. So, right. Um, that's I think that's the first thing. Second thing is around funding, and this this I think goes a lot to the structural question we're talking about. I really think innovation teams need what we call scarce but secure funding. In the regular part of our management portfolio. Every manager produces their annual budget based on some kind of, you know, I don't even really understand this. Growth like, targets. You know, growth targets and kind of yeah. we spread the peanut butter out across all the things. Every manager knows to pad their budgets a little bit because you never know when there's going to be a bad quarter and you might have to cut 10, 20, 30 percent of your budget and you, or you have a political ambush or, you know, whatever happens. Sure. Um, and that's no big deal. In the regular part of the portfolio, that's fine. Innovation teams, this is totally lethal. They have a really hard time justifying their ROI in the early stages, mm -hmm. and so uh, if they get, you know, they're they're constantly having to like make inflated forecasts just to justify their existence. Right. They tend to have to waste a huge percentage of their time and energy re-justifying the funding they already have, and a lot of startups run so close to the bare bones that if you were to cut their budget twenty percent, they would go out of business. Yeah. So one of the things I'm really trying to figure out for each organization is okay. 
do you have the funding and the finance discipline to segregate out the innovation part of your portfolio and say, mm -hmm. in this part of the portfolio only, if we need to cut 20%, we're going to cancel 20% of projects mm -hmm. rather than cutting everybody's budget 20%. Right, right. If that discipline doesn't exist in the finance function, then we have to either cause it to exist or that really answers your question about internal external. And that's sure. one of these things where if you're going to keep killing the projects, there's no point hosting them inside. Right. And then the third really critical element, I think, is for the people on the team to have what we call a stake in the outcome, where they have a sense of ownership of the thing that's going to be created. Mm -hmm. Ideally, if you're a Silicon Valley guy like me, you want people yeah. to have equity ownership. I mean, that right. is always the best. Sure. But it doesn't actually have to be financial. I've seen this work in a lot of different companies where there's really no, other than the career benefit of doing a good job, the legacy that you feel like you'll leave behind, there's no... Um, financial bonuses or anything, mm -hmm. but we still are able to make it clear that the person leading this team, the entrepreneur behind it, who's dedicated full-time to it, yep. has uh, the moral authority to make the decisions for that project, and it will the project will succeed or fail based on their merits. Right. So, like, I'm working with a company recently where, you know, as soon, like, this is a project that is, like, in the dumps. Nobody wants to fund it. No one thinks it's going to work. It's too crazy. There's this like dedicated team in the bowels of this monster organization huh. trying to make it happen. Yeah. Everyone just like just sniper fire constantly. They finally manage to get a budget, and they're like just about to like be, take their first baby step. And I kid you not, the CEO of their business unit is like, "When can I make an announcement about this?" Mm -hmm. It's like they haven't accomplished anything yet, but like you're already like, "Oh, when can I take credit for their work?" Yeah. publicly and take yeah. away all their sins of owner, which is so rude. It's like, well, if you want to take credit for it, why don't you fund it? <laughs> oh, no, you're not willing to fund it? Oh, they had to go outside for the Then no, I'm sorry. It's not your project, like hands off. Right. So that, again, can speak to do we have the organizational discipline you know, to set up the right incentives and uh, programs? You know, Can we give people the right job title? There's a lot of soft right. stuff that goes into making the team feel a sense of cohesion yeah. around the startup. Well, you you you, you touched on a uh, another question I wanted to ask. Actually, it's a good segue into that, which is um, we've you know we're we're drinking the Kool Aid on the lean principles, <laughs> and we 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 believe. And again, this is it's all sort of visionary at this point. We haven't we haven't actually you know um, sort of restructured to 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 make this happen yet. But um, in our vision, we you know we very much believe that as we create these self sufficient teams, self sufficient cross functional teams that. You know, we need to be ruthless about um, adding layers of management and people that aren't adding value to the customer at the end yeah. of the day, right? And and so uh, one of the things I want to talk to you about are what are the sort of signs that you look for um, on a team or if, let's say you're leading a team, right? The entrepreneur that, uh, you know, whoever you designate as that person on that cross-functional team, let's call it the product manager and say that person ultimately, when you're three people trying to figure out a solution to a problem, you know, the product manager is in essence leading that team, but yep. they're collaborating and they don't need a manager to help them collaborate. Um, and then you add a couple more teams and you're sort of iterating through your, your product trying to find the right solution. What are sort of the warning signs that, hey, this, this collection of people have now either grown to a particular size or we're starting to see these types of issues bubble up or take longer to resolve than... Uh, you know, then we'd like them to, and they need some yeah. sort of, you know, business owner, so to speak, who, you know, 
to kind of come in and help them stay quick, stay lean, yeah. right? And so mm -hmm. at that point, the manager in our eyes is adding value to the end customer by taking things off the plate of the people that are actually out there building the solution or figuring out the business model. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, before that person would just be collecting a big paycheck and getting in the way. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, yeah. Look, I, I, so. whenever possible, I believe in the founder CEO, which is okay. can the person who led the project at the beginning, can they grow to become the CEO of that new business unit? Mm -hmm. Just like an external startup, an internal startup aspires one day to go public mm -hmm. or be acquired. Right. So the question is, is it going to be, is it going to become a new PNL? It's like a new source of sustainable growth for the company, or is it going to be reabsorbed back into one of the business units? So that's the first question is we have to have an agreement about what's our plan there and what are the indicators we look for to figure out which of those things it is. Okay. And if possible, you know, if you're going to become a PNL, like ideally you would build it around whoever that visionary person was, at least until they reach the level of their, you know, either their own incompetence where they can't do it anymore right. or where they say, you know, I don't really want to do this anymore. I, I'd yeah. rather bring in somebody else. You know, I think that's, that's key. Um, but... Like I really, I'm really a believer in the Amazon concept of uh, the two pizza team, which is I like to have teams no bigger than you can feed with two pizzas. <laughs> I've not heard that one. That's good. Oh yeah, it's just yeah. it's like it's not an ironclad rule. It's just kind of like a rule of thumb for when it's yeah. a team too large. Because like yeah. my my real feeling is there's no such thing as a, a 25 person team. Once you're past a certain size, you fractionalize into multiple teams anyway. Yeah. So as much as possible, I would like to admit that and say, okay, well then this team is in charge of the consumer experience and this team is in charge of the back end or we split the product functionality in half and say you guys own this half, you guys own that half or you know whatever we have to do to, to split sure. it up. Okay. Um, but, but there's one extra thing that's different in a startup, an external startup than in an internal startup, which is... Um, our existing managers uh, have been trained to do reviews in most companies, mm -hmm. which is just like whatever's happening in your staff, you review it periodically to make sure they're doing the right thing. And a lot of companies, it's like a weekly review. I mean, you do have an op review where like every yeah. time you do something, someone is looking over your shoulder to make sure you did it right. I think that's a very harmful framework for any kind of innovation because because then people are like, well, maybe I'll do the review less frequently in order to not be so burdensome to my team. But then what happens is I come back to you six months and I say, listen, mm -hmm. I, I tried a bunch of stuff. Here's my experiments. I had to pivot. I had to do this. I learned this. We fucked this up. Like, all this stuff happens. And the manager is sitting there being like, well, why didn't you just get it right in the first place? Yeah. It's so obvious, right? Like, well, I, once you know the answer, everything's obvious. So that's no good. Yeah. So I really like, I've been trying with my uh, enterprise clients to have them actually set up like almost like a board of directors concept okay. for each innovation team. You say there's an entrepreneur who's the person who is fundamentally in charge of this program, and mm -hmm. they report their progress to somebody. But it's much more like a board meeting. Okay. There, maybe it's a chairman of the board who's their like direct executive sponsor for the project. But whatever other kind of like senior level stakeholders they need to influence have to come to those meetings. If you want to have a say in what happened to this project, you can't just parachute in and start lecturing the team. You come yeah. to the board meeting. You come every month or every six weeks or whatever the frequency is. Yep. And here's the cool part about it. You force the senior leaders to go on the journey with the team. So like I've been in meetings where the leader, you know, someone will say like, listen, we realized, you know, we're six months in and we just realized we have the wrong sales strategy. Like we should have been doing strategic sales, but we're, 
just swing inbound, and, and we have to pivot to a new sales strategy. Yeah. And the leader is like, and our first impulse is to be like, well, why didn't you just do that ahead of time? But it's like, hey, uh, if that was so obvious, why didn't you mention it last month? Yeah. Or the month before? Or the month? You were in the meeting. We've yeah. all been in the same meeting. We looked at the same data. It didn't occur to anybody in this room. So let's just admit, we learned yeah. something. It's actually a win. Let's yeah. celebrate and move on. And that I've seen that very that has worked really well. That's great. As part of our exploration into you know how to drive more innovation here at Blackbud, um, we've also been uh, engaging with uh, Marty Kagan of the Silicon Valley Product Group. Mm -hmm. And and so uh, you know I subscribed to his blog similar to lots of these blogs and uh, uh -huh. and I, he he had a post recently where he you know he was he was saying you know, he he sees a lot of value in the lean canvas um, but his his concern about it right so while while praising it you know he was he was giving it to uh -huh. he, he said his concern was that um, sometimes he sees projects that um, people don't pay enough attention to the solution risk yeah um, as early as they should. You know, because it's sort of because the lean canvas kind of downplays the solution box at first, because it yeah. says you know you don't really have a solution unless you have the right business model to go with it, and so I guess so. I I read it, and said okay, that that makes some sense, and and but my inkling is that there are certain types of products or projects mm -hmm. that where that holds true, where the solution risk is the greatest risk, and then there's other types of products or projects probably where the the greater risk is in the business model, and that. You know, if you get the right business model and you figure out the right problems on that side, you know, building the solution is the easier part, right? Not easy, yeah. but easier maybe. And so, mm -hmm. I guess you know, picking your brain a little bit on, you know, I don't know, you know, what are your thoughts on the types of products that tend or projects that tend to be where solution risk is the highest versus the business model? Yeah. Does that, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense to me. And I, I mean, I haven't worked with Marty Kagan, but I've heard really good yeah. things. So yeah, he's uh, great. Yeah, he's great. that's yeah. like a very thoughtful, thoughtful yeah. comment. And to be honest, um, I, I feel like the canvas fad has um, passed me by. Okay. Like I, I never really understood the desire to model things with, with the canvas because I really believe in like much more of a traditional business plan. Not the prose okay. part. The prose part I don't feel like is very valuable, but the yeah. spreadsheet, the mathematical equations that govern what a successful business looks like is where I is the part of the business plan I always thought was most valuable. And I don't see how any of these canvases, frankly, incorporate that. So I, I mean I I maybe I'm missing something, but I haven't personally found them that helpful. Okay. And I think Marty's concern is totally right on, which is yeah. as soon as you start to tell an entrepreneur how to organize their thinking about their business. You immediately cause friction because people's businesses are really different, and entrepreneurs are really stubborn. So Marty's right. Sometimes the solution risk is much bigger than the problem business model risk, and sometimes not. And I actually have like some rules of thumb and some personal situation. Like I have some ways I think about that personally, but I have found those rules of thumb and, and ways I think about it personally totally non-helpful in my dealings with entrepreneurs. Because every entrepreneur I have ever met is absolutely 100% convinced that they know what's going on in their own business. Mm -hmm. So they already have their strategic hypothesis set in stone. So I can sit there and argue with them, hey, you overlooked key resources, or you're overlooking the solution or the problem. And they're just like, you don't know what you're talking about, you're wrong. Yeah. So my focus 100% is on using frameworks that are general purpose enough that I can say, listen, you're the entrepreneur, you're the one that knows. Let's just document what you actually believe so that, God forbid, it turns out not to be correct. 
we have an opportunity to pivot before it's too late. Yeah. So just you tell me what you believe, and I'm going to make you write it down. Uh, say quantitatively what's supposed to happen with each hypothesis, mm -hmm. and then let's go test together. And if you're right, uh, no one will be happier than me. Like, I don't need to be right that I critiqued your thing and you didn't follow disruptive innovation correctly or whatever. Like, yeah. if you delight customers, uh, you're right on. Yeah. Um, we all win. We all win. Yeah, then, then we all win. And yeah. if you're wrong, that's an interesting conversation. We can say, well, then what was overlooked? Right. And so I want to make sure that when we have that conversation, we have real facts about, like, I'm just thinking of a couple products I was working on recently where the customer, like, I have one, one product in particular. They, they, they were trying to pre-sell the product. So instead of spending three years and $30 million to build this product, we kind of take three weeks to build. This is a physical product. They build a fully functioning mock-up of the workflow that the customer would experience. Mm -hmm. It looked quite real, but actually it was all, you know, it was the Wizard of Oz test. All the real work was happening behind a curtain the customer can't yeah. see behind. Yeah. Uh, and, and no matter what inputs you put into the device, it always showed you the same outputs. But since you only did one test, you didn't know that. It looked really yeah. real from the customer's point of view. <laughs> right. So they bring, bring the customers in in only three weeks instead of three years. So really a big win. And customers said, this is amazing. I love this technology. I really want to have it. And the team was like, excellent. We got the right solution. You know, delight standard is there. Okay, sign in the dotted line. And the customer said, these commercial terms are a deal breaker. We had this huge, like, 40-page contract they had to sign. They had to license, license all their rights, and it was just... Yeah. And they, said, and they said, no way. Now, you go back from that experience, and you say, all right, well, is this a business model risk issue or a solution risk issue? First, you're like, well, it must be business model. You must have mm -hmm. to pivot away to... But then someone on the team said, I don't know. If the solution was really, really good, wouldn't they put up with these terms? How important is it really? Yeah. And it's like, yeah. well... Those are good questions. We, you know, like, what kind of framework are you going to use to evaluate that? That's a matter of judgment and saying, all right, let's take what we think, like, let's take that input in, formulate a new hypothesis, and do the next test. Yeah. As long as we're testing frequently, like, let's say that we're convinced it actually is a solution thing. If we just make the solution better and better and better and better, eventually customers will come around. I'm okay with that. Yeah. But if you do three, four, five, six experiments and you made it better each time and customers still aren't, it's like, well, then you start to be like, you know, maybe we didn't interpret the data correctly. And then yeah. hopefully that's soon enough that you can do the pivot. So that's kind of how I would square that circle. Great. Well, Eric, I, I really appreciate the time. Though. This has been extremely helpful for me, and I'm, I'm looking forward to coming to the, the conference out in San Francisco. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And yeah. I think these are really thoughtful questions, and I, I just want to say, you know, I, I get asked questions a lot, so I do this quite often. You can really tell the difference between people who are just, like, asking you theoretical questions because they're kicking the tires or whatever versus people who are, like, deep in it trying to make yeah. it work. So I appreciate yeah. questions of the forum that are really about the, the real-life issues you guys are encountering, and I look forward to buying you a drink at the conference. Excellent. I'll take you up on that. <laughs> okay, good. I'll see <laughs> you then. All right, take care. All right, you too. This podcast was brought to you by the Lean Startup Conference coming up on December 9 to 11 in San Francisco. Visit leanstartup.co for more information.